Hey, it's Pretty Little Grown Men. Uh, I'm David Greenwald. I'm Damson Nicola. Hello. We, we are trying an experiment this week. We are live periscoping this episode, so by the time you've heard the, hear this podcast, you will have missed the live broadcast. <laughs> um, but if you saw it, uh, you know, it's an experiment. We'll see if it was worth doing. Um, this is a very special episode because it is the first one that we've recorded where Dom has not lived here. Mm-hmm. He just moved out. How is your new place? Uh, it's it's hot and covered in boxes. <laughs> um, that's pretty much the extent of it. Uh, we're trying to put things in their proper places, and as usually happens, uh, as maybe some of our listeners know, when you move in with a significant other, you realize you have a lot of redundant pieces of property. Like, we have... I don't even know how this fucking happened. We have three... Uh, things of ground, um, what is it? Uh, ground ginger. I don't even use ground ginger very often, but apparently we have three things of it. Just in case. Just because of, I guess, I guess one of, like, I bought two sometime because I didn't think I had one because, you know, like, you're like, oh, this recipe calls for a little bit of ground ginger. I probably don't have ground ginger. And so then you buy more, you buy more, and then you're like, oh fuck, I had I had ground ginger the whole time. I mean, it is supposed to be, you know, good for you, mm-hmm. good for the tummy. Rebecca tried to give me some chocolate covered ginger today, and that didn't sound very very appetizing. I've, I've had that before. It ends up being just kind of too sweet and weird. I'm not into it, despite loving both chocolate and ginger. Yeah. Separately. I like a little bit of ginger. This was a really, really, really good Pretty Little Liars episode. This, I, was, this was actually, I think, one of the best episodes of the series ever. This, this episode confounded me in so many ways. Yeah. Not in a bad way, it's, but... It's wild. I, I was perplexed the whole time that I was watching this, this episode. Um, again, in a good way. That's not a negative Well, let's, let's just try and kind of go through it in a linear way and see if we can try to make sense of it. Because there was so much going on. And it was the show like really stretching and trying to do different things, but also have a lot of plot and a lot of like emotional intensity. Uh, so it opens with Spencer in a Dutch angle, uh, <laughs> having what presumably is a dream. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, she's watching this young woman do basically goth dancing, like horror movie interpretive dancing, which is two coll- a collision of two ideas that I had never seen before. It was like a mixture between The Ring and The Nutcracker. Or like Black Swan. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really cool. I appreciated that the show was like becoming like super artsy for a second. Yeah. And in the like stream, that. Spencer's having flashbacks to the dollhouse. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy that right. you would have that in the dream, and we were watching. Or she it like, thinks it's the dollhouse. Right, right, and so we were watching it like, wait, is this real? Is she having flashbacks? Is this like Inception? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, She's yeah, exactly. Like a a dream. dream within a dream. Right, right. So that was insane. Um, that was very Inception-like. And it's like, wait, did Spencer have a pot cookie before bed? And this is like, this is what happened when you when you take drugs before you try to go to sleep. And then, <laughs> smash cut to Spencer. Uh, talking to Arya on the phone, uh, nibbling at her little baggie of pop brownies. Right. Which we commented that, uh, not, it's it's legal in Oregon now, so we can talk about it. It's legal in like about 
three, two or three hours from now. Like later, later, <laughs> oh, to, later yeah. tonight. It's still a federal crime, Dom. Okay. Let's let's not forget. Also, you know that you can't. Uh, so for those of you who are on a, who don't <laughs> who don't keep track of this kind of stuff, uh, Oregon uh, passed uh, legal marijuana use, uh, recreational use, um, last November, and as of July first, it is going into effect. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of news in the Portland area about exactly what that means. Uh, what are the sort of the, the ins and outs of the law? What are the stipulations surrounding uh, actual use? Um, today, I just read an article about how on uh, PSU's campus, they're basically they're banning it. They're like, we know right. you can carry it around, right? But because if campuses we see you, take federal funds, mm-hmm. so they have to abide by sort of federal laws, which is such a it seems like kind of a joke right because campuses mm-hmm. get paid such a tiny percentage from the government like right. less than i don't know isn't it like 10 percent or something now i know like the uc campuses in california like they barely take any money from the state to the point where it's kind of ridiculous that they should have to abide by any state restrictions oh i'd be surprised that uh the psu's um funds uh, derived from the state are like even like make a remote mark it's got to be all like uh you know personal or personal donors or the students themselves who are right. contributing to the to, to psu well and even in so because oregon also has no money in in rosewood this is situated as spencer getting the cookies from a medical marijuana user uh, right which is you know widely legal Yes. Um, what I thought they were going to do with this episode was have a bit of fun with it and get into some stoner comedy, you know, like have, it, <laughs> have, have some, some humor, some punchlines. And instead, they pretty much treated it as like, you were using this for drugs. You should not be using drugs as a crutch to deal with your anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you should not be self-medicating with marijuana yeah and the show like did not allow itself really any levity with this despite that the fact that like spencer was like at school eating eating her cookie the entire time just like yeah i could use a little bit more even though these things are like extremely high potency right despite the fact that spencer was eating edibles which well of course she was eating edibles but edibles are notoriously much more potent than just smoking Marijuana, right. as as the New York Times columnist uh, um, Marine Dowd can, mm. can oh, attest. Yeah. yeah, you got to be careful with that shit. And Spencer was holding her shit together extremely well. It was impressive. Um, so I think that you know, cheers to Spencer for keeping her shit together. If she needs that for anxiety, not only could she go to a doctor and use that as a way to obtain a medical marijuana card, but not um, with not with uh, the Hastings parents. That's true. The Hastings parents are not interested in in uh, Spencer using any chemical options yeah. at this point in her that, life. That would be funny though that if an ABC Family show in any way uh, prescribed to um, responsible medical marijuana use, right? If it actually like you know condoned it in a certain way. Well, it doesn't condone. It did. They didn't like. I mean, this other girl who's working at like the the book face hole, uh, the brew, the brew, the brew. Um, she, they're not Ez- saying Ezra's book hole. Like Ezra's, uh, Ezra hires this, this woman, you know, and is like, oh, it's cool. 
she's just stoned all the time. It's not a big deal. It's for right. it's for it's for her migraines. Which Ezra Ezra is like, oh yeah. By the way, she's she's kind of a, a flaky stoner. And then when Spencer even remotely implies that she might be getting some edibles from this this girl, uh, Ezra's like, well, come on, Spencer. Um, right. You know better than to medicate. You know you've had problems. I expect better out of you. Well, it was just one going of these, into full on bullshit Ezra dad mode. It was just it's just one of these things that the show does where it pushes these characters to like emotional extremes to just kind of push the plot along. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we've seen it. Well, uh, there's a lot more we could get into with that as far as like characters slipping around. Allison's dad. Uh, is real hard ass in this episode. Oh yeah, he's not interested in Lorenzo having any part in Allison's life. He and Allison are like, you know, just at a at each other's throats because he's had to reveal this entire Charles thing and be like, yeah, we hid your secret brother from you your entire lives. Yeah. I guess that's pretty fucked up. I don't really want to deal with that emotionally. So that was, you know, this is one of the few times when I actively felt sympathy for Allison because I, I've gone on record many times for saying that I don't like Allison ever, even when she seems like a sympathetic character. Sure. Um, but you have two men who are essentially trying to inflict their armchair psychology on Allison. In one corner, you have Lorenzo, who's telling Allison about her dad as if he's had some sort of psychological training, even though he's like... Well, he's a policeman. He's a cop. He's a one-year policeman. Sure, okay. And he's basically just like, you know, uh, you have to give your dad a break because he, he all he wants to do is protect you, and he failed. And when we were watching that, all I was thinking was if... If Mr. DeLorentis heard him say that, he would have been like, fuck you, kid. Get off my fucking porch. Yeah, yeah. Which he later, basically, <laughs> that, you know, it's not said, but that's essentially the, the and, I, and I would have felt the same way. It's like, well, why don't you have a child in a family and, you know, become older than 21 and then come back and, and talk, deal, about, yeah. talk about your, your uh, some... Some over fifty year old person's psychological problems. Sure, you know, but like, I, I think this is still, you know, it's quite the pivot from the Mister De Laurentiis of the previous season, where he was like this, you know, on the rare episodes he actually showed up. It wasn't like, you know, in uh, random out of town locations while mm-hmm. he was supposed to be caring so much about his daughter. But we saw him as this really warm, protective character who was very patient, very sympathetic believed everything Allison said, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's hardened and become a lot colder, and that's sort of a weird thing, but I guess you can see where it comes from. Well, especially all of a sudden, considering last week's episode, which maybe it's just, you you get a few shots of whiskey in Mr. De Laurentiis and he warms up, but uh, last episode, he was he was very open. Right. Very willing to talk about the situation. Right. Well, he was kind of back into a corner, though. Well, yeah, but he wasn't defensive when he was talking about it. He Mm -hmm. was more... It it seemed like an actual, like, parent who respects the maturity of his children and wants to talk to them about it, now that he knows that he no longer can cover it up anymore. Sure. So, I liked Mr. De Laurentiis' last episode, and then once again, he's back to this, like, shell of a character who's just sort of reacting very predictable ways to the stimuli around him. Right. Well, I guess he has to exist in such a way that it will provoke Allison into 
lying to her dad, doing something bad, getting herself back into trouble to be with with the liars or to be with Lorenzo and so on. Yeah. So I think, you know, we'll see this play out over the rest of the season. But we also haven't really seen him deal with like the death of Mrs. De Laurentiis, no. you know, or right. it seems like he should know a whole lot more about certain things that have gone on than he has let on. So he, to me, he remains a bit of a gray area. You know, mm -hmm. the character we saw in the previous season was like, oh, this guy doesn't know anything. He's just been sort of manipulated by his wife and his daughter and his son, and he doesn't know jack shit about what's going on. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, this is the guy who put his son in Radley. You know, so... Are we... Um, again, talking about timelines. Are we supposed to believe that the affair between uh, Mrs. De Laurentiis and Mr. Hastings occurred before both Allison and Jason were born? Well, Jason is Mr. Hastings' son. Okay. So... What if Charles is Mr. Hastings' son? That could be. That's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Charles could be Spencer's brother. Yeah. That seems unlikely, though. Why? But well, I don't know. Mm. I just have a gut feeling that it, <laughs> that they wouldn't they wouldn't do that because it just makes the plot like too fucking complicated. And then why would he be so? Why would this? Why would everything then center around Allison versus around Spencer? Yeah. You know. I, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that there are a few things. Um, and again, I'll, I'll say this: I I did in, enjoy this episode on, in a very <clears throat> visceral way, but. There are two things that I want to. Uh, I just want to get out of the way because I want to like put them down in recorded history. Yes, let's bury we, them. Let's bury them. In that the we thought about them. Sure. One is that uh, Mona returns. Yes. No one says anything to Mona about uh, the fact that she saw who kidnapped her. Yes, a person in a with long blonde hair. That when we when we flash back to what happened when Mona was supposedly killed, she saw the person, reacted, said something like, "Oh, you, you, or right. something like that." Right. And uh, then they then they fought. Right. And then she was gone and fake dead. Right. Mona, unless she conveniently, it was so traumatized that she forgot. Who this was? Correct. Mona knows who took her. Well, this is okay. and none of the liars questioned her about it. So yes, I agree. Uh, I think Mona's presence in this episode is super, super fascinating because you know throughout we've seen two Monas. We've seen the like completely uh, cold, super genius Mona, and then we've seen this Mona who like is um, paranoid and. Uh, insecure and scared of the world and wants and angry and wants to lash out, you know, this, this sort of more emotional end of her versus this like complete, um, you know, mission impossible character basically. Yeah. So in this episode we get the real like wounded, innocent, uh, paranoid Mona. And when she's talking to Hannah, she's super freaked out about Allison. Yeah. And, then of course we run. She runs into our old friend, um, Leslie Les Stone. Yes, Leslie, uh, who helped get the girls arrested in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
or, or I'm sorry, helped get them, testified against them, and helped get them thrown in prison, mm-hmm. um, which is still a completely insane thing. Right. That the show did. But I'm glad that she... At least she, Hannah, like, remarked upon that and said that she that could she have should said be, something. Yeah, that she should be the one who should be yeah. apologizing instead of flipping out at Mona and at Hannah. But, of course, that ends up being a cover, and the girls go into Radley and uncover all this information and find Mona sneaking around. But is that on purpose? Does Mona want to be caught? Is she playing this long game to... to you know, that's what I thought to put too. Leslie in a bind. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Is when that they found her. Because uh, Mona, they, Mona never gets planned. caught. Right, that she had it planned. I, I had the same thought, um, but that still doesn't. That still doesn't in any way. And I and I totally uh, I totally agree. But that doesn't detract from the fact that someone like, especially someone like Spencer, should have said, "Oh, hey, Mona, you know who took you? Right. Please explain. This. Right, or even." You know, okay, we were all captured. You were captured first. Here's what we heard. Here's what Mike told us. What the fuck? You were going to fake your own death? Like, what were you even thinking about? And then number two. What did you know? That's the second part that I wanted to point out is, where the fuck is Mike? Right. Still absent. So absent. And he is directly tied to everything. Because throughout the whole episode... The girls are essentially operating under the assumption that Mona planned out her kidnapping and it went wrong. Right. And that's what everyone is talking about. That's why Leslie freaks out on her. Is because it's basically just like, this was you concocted this whole thing, Mona. You started all of this. Right. This is your fucking up. Right. Uh, and no one is going to the source of this. Or no one's even saying to Mona... Like, hey, have you seen Mike? Right. Like, what the fuck? Here's this guy who was, like, borderline suicidal because of you disappearing. Right. Like, he there, he spent some long nights in his room shirtless. <laughs> right. Lifting, lifting weights. weights. Yeah. And someone, so tried sad. To, and someone also set up Mike's white bench to potentially, like, injure yeah. him. Yeah. So there was, yeah, there's a lot. I mean. And then Mike's gone. Right. So there's a lot going on. I mean, another another thing, I guess, this is such an insane episode. So we get a photo of A. Um, and and to, A has boobs. And to, right. Uh, so suddenly this text goes out to all the liars. It says, A is, is A a girl? Um, and, I mean, you said this during the episode. Like, why would you send this out on your phone when you know your phones are like, complete garbage like they're just a doorway right into azo you know (laughs) acing everything you tweet and text and whatever but nevertheless well despite what uh aria's mom and dad think uh, aria's a fucking dummy and so of course she would send that text. aria would do that but no one is like hey aria maybe double think this right you know right you know maybe maybe send this out you know BitTorrent just released this new uh, encrypted texting software, <laughs> but of course that doesn't exist in the Pretty Little Liars world because no. they don't have, you know, they don't have Facebook and Twitter and all these new technologies. They right. probably don't have the NSA in the in the Facebook or in the Liars world. A so is they the haven't NSA. A, exactly A. exactly. <laughs> so the Liars haven't had to, you know, they're not the the software developers of the PLL verse have not had to deal with these issues. Although maybe Caleb in his new role as a uh, professional web designer, which the show decided to to 
establish this episode. Uh, maybe he can work on something. Caleb, professional web designer and also uh, very knowledgeable in the ways of emancipating yourself from your parents. <laughs> right, right. So we see Emily really like uh, in total like um, protection, den mother protection mode yeah. over Sarah trying to get her emancipated from her crazy mom who we still haven't seen her alcoholic mom who we haven't seen on camera yet so that's like a whole gray area yeah if sarah's trustworthy or not uh but emily is just like locked in on her probably so that she doesn't have to think about her own problems and her own terror and her own like going to the shooting range to like <laughs> fire six fire around you know into a target <laughs> So it's like an interesting, I mean, I like that the show has sort of given each of them like a different way of dealing with this. And Emily's way is to like transfer her, her panic onto someone else and not even think about her own safekeeping. Right. You know, and that kind of leads into uh, something that was, I think was uh, very stark about this episode in ways more that possibly in any other episode of the series that I've ever seen, uh, which is that. So Sarah and Emily go to the tattoo, go to a tattoo parlor where um, they're going to celebrate Sarah's likely emancipation by getting a tattoo. Right. Now, we, it's already been established in the episode that Sarah is not 18 yet, and so therefore it's illegal for her to get tattoo without a, a parental guardian around. Not in the PLL-verse. Well, exactly. So <laughs> you go to this tattoo parlor where in the real world would be like a really shitty like backdoor tattoo artist who's basically just like I'll just whatever you fucking want I'll just like fucking scroll it on you I don't care like, right you know uh, but it's all it's all fine you know even though these 17 year old girls want to get tattoos and Emily who wants to hide a tattoo from her mom first picks her neck right I'll just put it under my hair she, yeah. wants, she wants to see that. Yeah, because because I'm gonna have long hair for the rest of my life, and because right. that makes sense. Right. Uh, but that is when the surreal sur surreality of the surrealness the surrealness of this episode starts to become extremely obvious and explicit. I, I don't know. I mean, it just felt like that that tattoo more that, so than the than the horror movie dancer. Yeah, because that at least was couched within the idea of a, of a dream. Uh-huh. And so I think that this episode is just like fully going down the path of, of just like, you know, this, this, is a, this is a show about girls growing up, but we're so far past that now. This is just like balls out, uh, surreal, like heightened hyper reality right now. Sure. I mean, I guess that's fair. I mean, maybe, I don't know, are those tattoo laws or those like a national, this is probably getting too sort of like logistical, too wonky for this podcast. Well, n no, I mean, I don't think that it's like totally out of the question to give these girls tattoos, especially because they look like they're fucking 25 years old, but... Um... Right. That's, <laughs> that's the other surrealness of the show is that, you know this show's been on the air for six seasons and so right. you have these characters who like were not teenagers to start with who like are still playing you know seniors in high school but just the whole the whole tone of the episode was so surreal and stylized it yeah. was yeah. Um, more but, so but i didn't think in ways i thought it was the best episode like this 
You know, I think in the past when we've seen supernatural stuff or we had the Spencer hallucinating noir episode, you know, I thought this was done in a much more like scary and um, just kind of bewildering way as opposed to like, I thought this was like a pretty seriously scary episode and it wasn't just like, what is going on? Like why this feels silly. This feels ridiculous. Like I felt like it was having them open in Radley or having them open in a Radley dream sequence and then go back to Radley and have the, you know, I thought the ways and the ways they did everything in this episode, um, felt really scary and sophisticated yeah and not kind of random and breaking the it didn't feel it felt elevated it didn't feel like it was breaking the aesthetic of the show no and i i i agree with you i think that the comment that i made before was uh the pace of this episode was so odd it was very fat it was packed it was it was packed but it was just so it was it, it felt really off and not in a bad way and I, I really want to stress not in a bad way, and I keep saying that over and over, because, but it was in, in a fascinating, interesting way. It felt off. And, you know, now that I'm thinking, not to make like a super, super hipster illusion, but uh, it felt like almost like a Bukowski poem or something, or like a short story by Bukowski. Or like Bukowski short stories, like crazy weird shit happens, and it's so, it's remarked upon in such a commonplace way that you just accept the reality of it. Right. Um, no matter what. Like, it'll just be like, and then I turned into a two-inch man, and then I climbed inside of her vagina, and she had an orgasm because I was climbing around in there, and I came out, and I and I was covered in, you know, like, gross women juices, and then I grew super tall again, and but I had a huge dick. And it was just like, like, Bukowski is just like... He just presents it matter-of-factly. Right. And then it's, it's, like, and it's weird and kind of off-putting, and it felt this is how that episode felt as far as pacing goes because it's just like suddenly you find yourself like deep in this episode and it's like and like we were saying it's like um, uh, Spencer and Hannah are at Radley and meanwhile Emily and Sarah are getting, like getting like illegal getting, tattoos right and, right it's it was it was <laughs> wild to me that the show would have like a B plot happening while. Spencer and Hannah are in Radley. And that sort of shows you that they're not going to encounter A in a way. Because you're like, well, nothing terrible could really happen while this other thing is going on to distract us. Mm-hmm. Right? And then it ended up being Mona. So that yeah. was sort of an interesting little uh, moment. But let's get to the, the Leslie thing at the end. Mona gets the, they, the liars catch Mona. They find out that Leslie was in Radley for a long time, was Bethany Young's roommate, and also could have known Charles. So this connects all the dots. This <laughs> super convenient little doodle. And we get this great phone call between Mona being very sheepish and playing the coy victim, um, which she does really well. Yeah. And telling Leslie that she screwed up and the liars know everything. And Leslie freaks out. And she's just in a car, which looks like a sort of like, she looks like she's sitting in there. You can't really tell what's going on, but she looks like she could be sitting in there with her laptop, like blue snarfing or whatever the hell, you know, (laughs) doing her her surveillance. And then we get an A sequence where A is making a neat little wig for a doll with Aria streaks. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's an A who's, yeah, that was strange. That was such a weird A ending. Yeah. Um... Because it almost serves, it felt pretty 
retroactive. Like it's it, something that A would have been doing two years ago. Right. So it was a little bit confusing. It doesn't really guide you to any conclusion. There was a line in this episode where I think Spencer asks Arya what she did with the um, the hair the hair color. Oh yeah. And that happens at the, that's a conversation at the beginning of the episode. But like, you know what? Uh, also, I don't know if this is any anything, but. Doesn't Leslie call Hannah a bag of hair? Yes. Isn't that such a weird thing to call someone? That's a really stupid insult. <laughs> and Hannah it's doesn't such an even odd insult. Hannah doesn't even like have long hair right now. It's sort of just like you're a bag of hair. <laughs> I spent my life in Radley, and those are the insults that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start calling people a bag of hair. I yeah. So there was just like, this is such an insane episode, but we do find out probably for certain, right, that Charles is dead. We get like double confirmation that Charles is dead, Mm -hmm. unless the Radley records have been faked, which is not out of the realm of possibility. No, I mean, I think that we're leaning towards some sort of grand conspiracy surrounding Charles's death. Right. You know, we think that um, Charles possibly killed Toby's mom. Right. Or had something to do with her death. Sure. You know? Sure. Uh, and that that's all tied together with Mrs. De Laurentiis. So... And Bethany Young. What and are... Leslie Stone now. Right. So clearly next episode, the girls will try to confront Leslie, and they'll, Hannah will say, I know everything. Here's all the things that I know. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to leave you any room at all to hang yourself. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you all this stuff. But then we still have a lot more... Well, Hannah's already convinced that Leslie Stone is A. Right, because the liars <coughs> latch on to every every new suspect as a potential A. Right. <clears throat> so now Leslie Stone is A, period. Right. But how many A's do we think there are? I think, I think there's clearly, multiple. I think clearly more than one. Oh, yeah. And I think there could still be a male A who isn't Charles, but is, at this point, who even knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, I appreciate that they, if they're going to bring in Leslie as like the set, it is like a little bit of a de- deus machina to have it be like, oh, she was Bethany Young's roommate. Of course, you right. know. But at least that brings us back to Bethany Young and it starts to fit the pieces together and it makes it feel like the show does have some kind of unified theory of everything, which I really hope it does. Maybe Leslie is Charles. It could be, man. <laughs> I don't know. I think Leslie is just Leslie. And she yeah. could be that A, but we don't really know what happened to Cece Drake. And Cece feels like she could have been the A who kidnapped Mona. I mean, there's a lot going on that we don't know about. Yeah, that's true. Cece Drake. Yeah, what happened to her? We don't know. But maybe Leslie, in a blonde wig, was the fake A who came to help Mona fake her death. Then why wouldn't... then? And this whole thing about perjury or whatever is just, just like her sort of like trying to disconnect herself from this thing that maybe it like goes into this, it's, maybe it's like this sort of subtler conversation that they're having where she's saying, I helped you do this thing and then it went horribly wrong and now we're all fucked. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think, I just, I, yeah, at this point I have really no idea what's going on, which I like. I'm enjoying not not feeling like, oh, this is going to come down to Jason, you know. I'm enjoying having new information and not feeling like that information is dumb. Because that was my big fear about this season. No, I agree with that. Um, And again, like, Leslie Stone's uh, shittiness is so obvious that that her 
her culpability can't be as obvious as how shitty she is. Right. I mean, she's been like a pretty, since she like double crossed the liar, she's pretty much been like, oh yeah, this is like an unlikable bad character. Right. It would, her unlikability is only uh, emphasized by her uh, so-called apology to Hannah, uh-huh. which is basically, I'm sorry, but also I'm going to say a bunch of shitty things about Mona and I'm kind of just a dick. Right. Sure. What do you think about Mona's paranoia of Allison? Is that honest or is that all, is this all part of the big plan to throw everyone off the scent of what's going on? Well, I think that either you accept that Mona is actually psychologically damaged. Yes, I think that I do. I do. Okay. So then, so then that's, I think is a legitimate factor of her like psychoses, but, um, because otherwise it makes no sense. Sure. You know, she is, unless unless she's like stuck in this weird psychological uh, quandary. Well, because she was scared when Allison comes back the first time, Mona raises an army. She's freaked out about her. Like, this is not new information to, right. to her character. But, you know, given that Allison saves them and was clearly like the target of this entire situation. Right. Doesn't that change? Wouldn't she accept that that changes the dynamic? Yeah. Um, yeah, or it's like part of some greater plan. Which at this point is just kind of like what what is that? What is that plan? Is <clears throat> is Mona still trying to lure A out? Maybe that's it. Mon maybe Mona's trying to lure A out. You know, like it trying could to like be. you know, I would really love it if Mona ends up being the superhero of the show. Like, if Mona gets... Re- I feel like they are going to end up killing off Mona. I feel like they have to kill off some character in, like, some, like, sacrificial hero way mm-hmm. because that just seems like something the show would do. But I would love it if Mona ends up being, like, the superhero of the show who who solves the mystery and, like, you know, gets to take some credit. Yeah. <clears throat> I would also love it if Jenna came back and we had any idea what was going on with her. Yeah, where's Toby, by the way? He's he's out of town. He's just out doing his thing. He's gone for several days randomly, and Spencer just can't wait for him that that uh, police bot to return to Reswood. Man, yeah, there are some there are some puns surrounding bones. Yeah, some bone this puns. This is this is like a very like sexy reference episode. <laughs> this is like a very like you know we've seen the show becoming more mature, and in this one. Um, you know, everything has escalated, including, like, the fact that all these characters are, like, openly having sex. Yeah. And it's just, like, not a big deal. To, ha- to, hear, to hear Spencer drop a pun about stony... Stonies. <laughs> drop, drop a pun about, uh, about Toby's uh, erection is tantamount to seeing Arya's naked back when she's fucking Ezra. Like, it's Ugh. the same... Yeah, it's Ugh. it's just, like... And Hannah's like, oh, Spencer. Gross. Ugh. Yeah. I'm, my will's bone dry. And Spencer's like, gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gross all around. Yeah, thanks. We know you're not boning Caleb right now. Well, so yeah, I don't know. Not a lot of humor in this episode. Missed opportunities for drugs being funny. Um, but, you know, and then they brought back the uh, Spencer's sober counselor. Who we'd all forgotten about, but oh, here's a new cute boy for her to fixate on. And then he makes a pun about cookies. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I gave, you, like, I gave you my number. If you ever need anything, if you can't sleep, 
You should call me. I gave you something. You didn't use it. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, of course, you know, you wonder, she's, though. She's just a boy magnet. You wonder, though, she does find herself in these situations with boys pretty often. Uh, but you do wonder if the if her, if her that dude is aware of everything that happened to her. That's a good question. You know, if he, like, like reads the news or whatever. Presumably. Because he was, I don't know, it's just kind of one of those situations where it's just like he's trying to be suave, but if he actually knew what was going on. It's like Clark and Arya, which I, le- I legitimately like Clark as a character because he seems aware right. of what's going on. Right, and like a, like a respectful dude. Right, whereas this this other, the sober counselor or whatever, uh, he's like flirting, but it would be callous if he didn't know what... It seems callous because it seems like he doesn't know what's going on with Spencer. I, I think you could read it. It's definitely flirting, but I think he also is trying to be... I don't know. It's a weird It's a weird dynamic. I think you could see it as him being trying to be genuinely supportive, but this being, being Pretty Little Liars and Spencer, I think it skews... It obviously like leans more into the flirting side of things and leaving that door open for Spencer to... Um, oh, I couldn't wait for Toby to get home, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It just, it's... I, I almost feel bad for Spencer because of the way that, like, she's gone through this huge traumatic experience. She can't sleep at all. Uh, she's an addict, so she can't take pills to help her sleep. And so she resorts to medical marijuana in order to just get some sleep. And everyone is basically just like, that's a slippery slope to heroin, pretty much. <laughs> right. It's not, yeah, no one is being, I mean, you know, obviously you shouldn't be self-medicating, but... Yeah, no one is saying like, you know, Spencer, have you tried transcendental meditation? Like, <laughs> we let's let's sit down and say om for ten minutes. You yeah. know, like hey, Spencer, you were an athlete. Have you tried trying to go for a jog? You know, <laughs> to relieve stress. Like, there are things that you could do. You know, that don't involve taking a chemical substance to try to deal with some of these anxiety issues. But yeah, it's pretty like. Just deal with it. You're a strong person. Like, that's a shitty thing. You're stronger than you know. That's, like, not actually care. Right. Like, that's not actually, like, treatment. I don't know. It's it's no, interesting. It's true. It, I mean, it's been interesting to me to see the way that they're trying to deal with trauma and, like, how these characters are going to deal with trauma. And I don't feel like they've really... In Spencer's case, I don't really feel like it's been... She. I don't feel like she's been given a healthy path, you know? And the response is, like, you just need to be stronger than this, like... An unbelievably shitty experience and it's like that's not how post-traumatic stress works also remember how uh hannah was like borderline alcoholic remember right. that sure remember that? and then uh, just like clambered her way back and now is super judgmental about spencer eating a brownie or whatever also like you i would think that after a traumatic experience that if you legitimately are an addict which a lot of people are right that you would like deal with pos you would deal with that addiction again like wanting to maybe like you know have a drink like oh my god i just got back from this incredibly trying experience yeah i could really go for a drink yeah it would challenge your sobriety yeah for sure yeah that then i think that'd be a legitimate like plot point is to have hannah deal with alcoholism although but they wouldn't do that because you already have one of the characters dealing with addiction right Right. Well, and also, I feel like Hannah was more pulled into it by Caleb. It didn't come from her, sort of. It was something she was doing, but it didn't feel like she was as trapped in it as he was. And so when she decided, this is bad, 
I don't want to do it anymore. It, like, it never felt like she was sort of as dependent on it as Spencer's been portrayed mm-hmm. with her pill-taking and so on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it yeah. is like... They could be a little bit more supportive and not... There's a lot of lashing out going on and a lot of fear. And, like, you know, maybe that's realistic, too. I mean, showing the way people are scared for someone else and they don't know how to support them, you know? Well, I think that now that we're talking about it, the show doesn't really deal... It seems like no one on the show is capable of helping these girls deal with their trauma in any sort of... Well, and the villain behind the trauma. Yeah. Well, even... The whole concept of the show is that they can't be protected... And they can't, they're always under threat and they can't even protect themselves and they have to lie and basically put themselves, they don't want to be liars necessarily, but they're put in the position of lying because, you know, no one can protect them from this horrible predatory world. And that's ultimately like a pretty fucked up moral, you know? I mean, you hope that the ending of the show is like, that they were able to triumph over this with the power of like solidarity and honesty, but... You know, maybe that's not, maybe the show doesn't have, like, this, this, maybe it doesn't end in this, like, sort of triumphant moral uh, message. No, I think, I think you're right. Although it's, you know, and maybe that's, that's just, like, sort of the, the show's realistic side showing through, especially when, um, you know, all these characters don't, don't deal well with trauma at all. I mean, even just, like, besides, like, Spencer self-medicating and well Hannah. i mean they they, like they just they try to re- they try to instead of like dealing like legitimately dealing with things their response is to for forget it which is ridiculous well, that's, that's, i mean that's how aria yeah each of them has their own response yeah. right and so that's aria's but i mean they can't even go see the therapist without a saying i'm gonna kill this bitch if you go <laughs> in and see a psychiatrist right now you know i mean that's about as like intensely like traumatic as it gets right like no no self-care for you you're going to live in fucking fear you know i mean that's it's pretty harsh it's some pretty harsh shit that the show is showing us this season that's true um speaking of harsh shit did you watch the new true detective we watched about half of it and I was ready to turn it off during, like, the stupid Vince Vaughn story at the beginning, uh, which I couldn't understand how what he was saying. And we watched, like, 20 minutes in, and I was just like, okay, I don't want to watch this anymore. <laughs> I heard that something really insane happens at the very last minute. It does, but, I mean, I'll, I'll say spoiler alerts. I don't know if you care. I'm, I don't I mean, you're only a, it's only I'm not second gonna, episode. I'm not going to watch this the rest of the season because so it's garbage. So the, the episode ends where... Um, Colin Farrell's character, Detective Velcoro, uh, gets a an address from Vince Vaughn because the whole obviously they're investigating the murder of the city manager for Vinci, the this made up city. Yeah. Um, this analog for this like L.A. area yeah, city. That's uh, so they have the city manager, and it's like a super corrupt industrial area. The city manager is is murdered. Um, and uh, so uh, Detective Velcoro and then Rachel McAdams' uh, character, I don't know, Annie something. Antigone. Antigone, that's right, yeah. Uh, they, uh, they're investigating all, this, all the background of the city manager, this, this Casper guy, and uh, which I wonder if that's like a, an illusion. Ghost. It's a ghost, yeah. Um, 
so Vince Vaughn tips off Velcoro on this lo- the location of this mansion where Casper used to go to basically like do like weird sex things. With, sure, you like know. he did. So Velcoro decides to go by himself to check this place out, and he's walking around and he's checking this out, and he finds some like possible room with like a video like a video camera that might have been recording some. Uh, not so wholesome things and uh, he's walking and he turns around and there is a shadowy character in like a raven's hood Uh that pulls out a shotgun and shoots him in the leg takes him down and uh, and Velcro tries to pull a gun and can't in time and then the character walks over and you see there's a there's a long shot of Velcro laying on the ground and and then the hooded raven person walks over and uh, fucking shoots him point blank right in the crotch. Oh, God. Yeah, it's... it's Just like what happens to What the, happens to it, yeah. Oh, And that's no. how the episode ends. Oh, I mean, okay. Which See, it's I, like, it's I, like okay, now I want to know what happens, even though I'm, like, not on no, board. No, I don't want to know what happens. <laughs> I don't, when they showed that shot of the body with the bloody crotch, and there's no... It's just like, oh, here's this thing. You're just like... I was watching, just like, oh god, I don't need to see that ever. Why did you need to show that to me? Yeah. Like, why? How is this on television? Mm-hmm. What's the fucking point? I'm gonna have nightmares about this shit. You oh know? yeah. This isn't like a fun, like scary. Ooh, it's a scary movie. This is just like this unbelievably disgusting, awful thing. Well, can you imagine? I just the, don't need to have that image in my brain. The prosthetics department on the show being like. I wonder what a shotgun crotch looks like. Oh, man. It's just like... Yeah. Excuse me. I, you know, I don't want to be like, whoa, it's so distasteful. But it was, like, extremely unpleasant. And the fact is that I think all the characters are stupid. And the mystery is stupid. And the whole setup is like... I mean, this episode, there's like four scenes in a row where they're just like, all right, let's explain to you that all these characters have different loyalties and they all have their own agenda, yeah. you know? And it's like, okay, that's not interesting if you set it all up and you're just like, all right, everything's going to play out with this tension because of this shit we just showed you, like talking out through the plot, you know? It's just boring. Well, I, I just think, don't care. I think that one of the things that the, sh- the new season gets so wrong compared to the earlier season is um the language that's used like the sort of the heightened philosophical language uh you know in the last season it was matthew mcconaughey saying fascinating weird things and woody harrelson being basically being like what the fuck are you talking about right and that was kind of the fun dynamic was you know there's this like strangely mystic person contrasting with this very straight-laced, by-the-books procedural detective. Right. Um, whereas in this season, you have Vince Vaughn... Just saying, who gives it? Just like, well, saying talking like, about his, like, oh, this horrible childhood. Oh. Well, yeah, it's just like, he like, it's just, I... I feel like these are the kind of lines that if you write them down on paper, you're like, huh, hmm, that looks good. And then yeah, you're like, like, oh, God, I'm such a good and writer. And someone, someone hears these and you're like, wow, that was the worst lines ever. When, he, when Vince Vaughn is sitting in the car and he's talking to his fucking cronies, it's like these guys are like well-educated people. They're just like fucking his like lackeys. And he's just like, am I diminished? 
It's like, what kind of fucking criminal overlord would say, am I diminished? And then keep saying, it's all paper mache. It's like, what is this symbolism? This is like, this is just like, a. This, it's like, it's like borderline on the level of like the counselor. Right. Of like, it's like, of, it's like, it's like, it's like Nick Pizzolatto or whatever his fucking name is, is trying to be Cormac McCarthy. Right. And it's just so, it's, it's too much not, of a bro for Cormac it's McCarthy. Not even close. Not even close. And, but The Counselor was a terrible movie. The Counselor, The Counselor is the kind of movie that I would definitely watch again because it's like fascinatingly bad to the point where mm-hmm. it almost feels like it's, it, it's like its own thing. It, right. It appro- it transcends mere badness into its uh, this its own particular like weird art experience. Yeah. And and Cormac McCarthy like that's the thing. That's that's why No Country for Old Men is such a uh and but that movie's and, great. Well, but it's an inimitable way to tra- and I've never seen all the pretty horses nor have I read it. But Translating No Country for Old Men to a into a really fantastically great movie is a difficult thing to do because Corp McCarthy doesn't write in realistic ways. Right. And No Country for Old Men is is more realistic than a lot of his other books are from from what I've read. Right. I haven't read a whole lot of his books, but well, the thing with the thing with No Country is that the Coens have a sense of humor, even if it's like macabre, even if it's like pitch black, mm-hmm. and McCarthy in writing the counselor, there's no real humor to it, and this character just sort of like gets thrust into a situation and then has to deal with it and can't, and that's basically it. It just mm-hmm. he just is in over his head, and then he gets fucked. Yeah. You know, there's no sort of like, ooh, but how will he? Will how will what what funny thing or what what broader message or no? It's just like this guy made a mistake and then pays the consequences, and it's there's no real tension in that. It's just yeah. like the knocking down of the dominoes that have been set up for you. Whereas in That's a good point. whereas in No Country, like there is the real tension of like is this guy is this hero character gonna outsmart the villain? You know, you have this real wily fascinating villain who you don't really understand necessarily and then you have like this third character of the Tommy Lee Jones character who's sort of the wise observer who can like give you some context and some like you know it's not just terrible things happening to this one guy like it happens in the context of like good versus evil in in the in the real world and you have this older guy who's seen it play out over and over again Mm -hmm. and he has to deal with it and so it, it like has something broader to say as opposed to here's just this dumb story about this crime thing that goes poorly and it's a bad coincidence and then it's over. It's you just know? so weird. It doesn't about, really tell you anything. That's about just so the weird about the counselor. Unless Cormac McCarthy wrote that script a long time ago, which I don't think is the case. No, I don't think so. It's so the story itself is so shallow compared to what he's normally capable of, and this is coming off of like the road. Which well, is yeah. a really, which is super stylized and not re- not very realistic at all. Well, and ends in like spoiler alert for the road, but ends in like this message of like almost irrational hope. Yeah, mm-hmm. which, yeah, which, which actually I didn't like about it. Well, but it's almost like it's almost like in order to survive, you have to have a message of you have to you have to sort of believe in hope beyond all things. Yeah, you know, which I which it, to me it was a very touching ending, and I really loved the road. I, I thought it was a great book. Oh, but, I think it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, the, the counselor, that's what's so strange about the counselor is 
you you sense you sense McCarthy in it, and you sense his his ideologies and his style, but it just comes off so strangely and so off, and it just doesn't feel right when you're like watching it. You're just like, is this how this movie is? Is this what this movie is? And it doesn't have you know, it's very lean. You know, when you read a McCarthy book, I mean, The Road is an exception, but some of his books, um, you know, they just go on and on and on for pages about, like, some weird dream sequence. Or there's, it's not all the pretty, I think it's in The Crossing, Mm. um, which I read in high school and just hated. Um, (laughs) You know, I didn't really appreciate the prose style at the time. I was reading it more to get it done so I could write my stupid book report. But, you know, the last chunk of that book is irrelevant to the plot, and it's just like... This recounting of the story. I can't even remember what happens, but it's one of these things where, I mean, there's a bunch of books we read like this in high school, like The Poisonwood Bible is one, where it's just like you get to the point that seems like sort of the rational ending of the book, the climax, and then there's another like 80, 100 pages of just Mm -hmm. like, you know, just esoteric whatever bullshit, and you can draw whatever meaning you want from it. But the counselor has no fat whatsoever. There's no sort of meandering of like, what does this mean? Or extraneous sequences it's just like chain of events there it is it's pretty insane movie's over right but surrounded by these i think that you know the nothing none of the plot is fat but all of the dialogue is fat yes yes it's like the plot itself is lean but the dialogue is almost all extraneous it could almost be a silent film yes you know yeah which is which is kind of a strange way of thinking about it but Mm -hmm. Um, the new season of True Detective has never before felt like, and this is and this is after the first season, which I almost want to go back and watch the first season, knowing what I do about the second season and seeing if it holds up because the second season is just so it's just like all of the things that you almost felt like the first season could or it was was almost borderline doing wrong. Uh-huh. The second season just like full on Embraces. does does wrong, right? Right. You know, and to hear Vince Vaughn describe things as paper mache, like this philosophizing criminal, it's just like, this is fucking dumb. There's yeah, nothing of depth here. It's really unfortunate, because you see that, you see that, like, so much of the power of the first season was, like, uh, the structure of the, of mm-hmm. the crime. Like, yeah. you're dealing with this old crime that, that you think was solved, and then it turns out not to be, so that's a whole thing. You're doing it in flashback. You're having these unreliable narrators telling you the story and setting it all yep. up for this new batch of cops. So you have sort of this whole kind of mythology that's being created within the show, as opposed to this one, where it just plays out in real time, and there's no mythology. You just have, like, these asshole characters who don't mm-hmm. really have time to sort of... You don't see what they were like when they were younger. You don't have time to sort of, like, connect to them in the yeah. same way that you did with with McConaughey and... and um, uh, God, what's his Woody name? Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's characters. Woody. Right, right, right. And, of course, their dynamic is great. And in this show, so far, the dynamic is just, like, all these characters are just shitty assholes. Yeah. You know? So it's just, like, the, there's no chemistry. There's no connection. There's no mythology. It's just, like, bad people doing bad things. And it's like, man, I don't want to watch that. It's not interesting. Well, yeah, and it's almost, it's it's really clunky, too. And, like, I think a perfect example is uh, uh, Taylor, I mean, what's his, Taylor Schilling, is that his name? His, Taylor his something. Yeah, so uh, Paul, Paul Woodrow, that's, yeah, the, the highway cop. Um, 
you know, like, can't get an erection for a super hot girlfriend, uh, is just, like, so, so sexually frustrated, like, so much of what he does is just centered around sex, and then the only conversation he has with some, like, fucking schmuck of a, of his, of the, the, you know, it's like, it's like the classic, like, smart but incompetent cop, uh, in that one scene where they're, like, meeting in their, like, area where they have all the, the stuff, and it's, like, this, right. like, weird, like, random drunk detective guy who's just, like, assigned to the case randomly, and Woodrow is, oh, like, apropos of nothing, talking about a situation in which he was hit on. Right, and he is and a, he, and uh, he, he's a homophobic slur. Right. Which, yeah, we were watching that, and I was like, why did he say that? Yeah. Why did the show need to have that? The That's only super fucked the up. The only reason is clunky foreshadowing because he's gay. Oh. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. You know, but if that's the case, that's a really fucking dumb way of writing that character. Right, and the show is, I mean, this is being said in, like, California. It's not being said in, like, Tennessee or, you know, I don't know. I mean, somewhere where it would be seen as, like, it would, where it would be harder to be, to come out, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. It's just, it that was another moment of the show where it's like, God, this is, like, horrible. And this is just bad creative, this is bad television and offensive television. And I don't want to watch or support it. So I'm, yeah. I'm not going to watch it anymore. I will probably continue to watch it because I, I mean, really want to see it. It's super stylized. Yeah. It's super like, you know, there's a lot of like work and energy being put into making it feel like it has a style, which is, and I appreciate that craft, you know, mm-hmm. but it's really shitty. This is a bad show. Yeah. That's that's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I I did like the second episode better than I liked the first episode, but I also think that's like a perfect example where it's just like, especially Colin Farrell's character, where in this episode, in the second episode, you get like a better idea of him as a human being as opposed to just like this like fucking shell of a monster, you know, in the first episode where he's just like irredeemable mm-hmm. pretty much. And in this new episode, he actually kind of is a character. In fact, Rachel McAdams is like the least of a character at all. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is like, here's a show that got so much shit for treating its women, its, its women uh, like non-people. Mm-hmm. And so it attempts to bring in a main character who's a woman. And, and just like completely fumbles. And it's just like, she's not even a character. Mm-hmm. She's just like a grimacing... I don't know, even know what she is. She's just like a, she's like a black hole of sadness and depression. Like her character is out of everyone, like the most dour and like doesn't like there is. I mean, I'm not saying that Rachel McAdams is a bad a bad actor by any means, but she's wonderful in the Notebook. Right, she seems perfectly capable of doing good things, but in this, in this series, and you can see this on Periscope. Her whole, her, her whole, uh, her whole acting style is just like <sighs> grimace, <sighs> grimace, grimace. Yeah, I don't know, man. I think this is a bad show, and people should say so, and it should be banned from HBO. Although I don't know what else they have to run. More, more political shows with Jack Black. Yeah, that, that that the the break is dumb as fuck. It and seems like, it doesn't seem interesting. It was I don't understand so how they can stupid. I don't understand how they can have Veep and then be like, let's do another show about the White House for some reason. Like, why would it's you? It's so why? over the top. It's mm. so 
dumb. It's it's like it's one of those shows that thinks it's that thinks it's really really funny and it's uh, not. It's just loud and obnoxious. Uh, um, and I haven't watched Ballers yet. I would almost. I would, I would, if I watched Ballers and if, if, it, if Ballers is exactly what I think it is, I think Sports I would, entourage. I think I would like it more than I would like True Detective in the Brink. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see that just because I love The Rock. Did you see I San, love The Rock too. Did you see San Andreas? No, I haven't seen San Andreas. Well, okay, you should see it. It's actually terrific because we should do a pod on it. Wait, you saw it? I, we saw it over the weekend. Oh, you did? Oh. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's like... It's extremely predictable. I mean, it's ba- it's like The Rock and like he drives like four or five different vehicles over the course of the movie. <laughs> it's sort of just it just does everything you sort of want a summer a dumb summer blockbuster to do. Mm-hmm. But I thought the performances were like pretty serious and there's like an actual emotional story and there's real catharsis that happens and like at least The Rock's The Rock's character and his sort of relationship arc in the movie like it's cheesy, but it's real, mm-hmm. and it connects a lot more than like John Cusack's bullshit character in 2012, 2012 yeah. the worst movie ever. And also, the effects were cool. The shots were really well done. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like a thoughtfully made, big budget movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy to sort of criticize these movies, but this one was actually just like an extremely enjoyable and exciting two hours in a movie theater. And it shows you things you haven't seen on camera before, and it shows you real emotion. And what more do you want? You know. I, so I don't I, want it anymore. I came out of it just like exuberant at how good it was, and thinking, man, I love summer movies. I love summer blockbusters, and I just don't care at all about these like prestige Oscar dramas about just like sad white people. Yeah. I'm just like not interested at all in those kinds of movies anymore, and <laughs> I may never watch one again. I didn't watch like any of the Oscar dramas last year. And I may just never go see one again because I'd rather go see Avengers 2 and San Andreas and Ant-Man and, you know, Paul Rudd comedies. That's not true, but you saw Boyhood. I did see Boyhood, but I saw that because of um, Linklater. Yeah. You know, he's, he's not a guy who is always up for best picture of the year. You know, it was only yeah. because, like, the movie had a gimmick, you know, because yeah. it was made over 12 years or whatever. Um, and that, you know, I thought that was a really good movie, but also not a perfect movie. No. And had, I thought it had some pretty major plot flubs in the last 20 minutes or so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I'm not, I mean, I don't really want to talk about Linklater, but I'm, I'm a decent fan of his. Um, so, uh, maybe next time we'll talk about, um, Terminator Genesis because... Oh, man, I can't wait. It's not getting good reviews. It's getting, like, the opposite of good reviews. Yeah. It is... Everyone is basically saying it's, like, the worst movie of the summer. I'm... I'm really disheartened by that because I saw the trailer and I was like, this actually is a cool idea Mm -hmm. and Khaleesi is in it and it might not suck. I mean, I'll definitely go see it. People are saying that she's, like, a terrible Sarah Connor. Yeah, that's that's what I read in the new york times today well, uh, we'll see um so maybe we'll you'll have that to look forward to uh pretty little liars pretty little grown men listeners um thanks for being with us you can tweet us at plgm podcast some of you have been thank you that's awesome we want to talk to you um we want to know who our listeners are because i it's amazing that someone would get to the get to this point in the podcast to me and i i appreciate every one of you someone told us uh we should do a shout out while we're. Let's do a shout out. Yeah, uh, if someone, you made it, if you made it this far. 
Someone uh, told us that they have a uh, a uh, an Aunt Carol. Uh, oh, yeah. We talked about this last week that everyone has an Aunt Carol. Yeah. Shout out to Sarah Elaine, who has an Aunt Carol. Yes. Um, yes. So if you also have an Aunt Carol, tweet at us at PLGM Podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we will give you the hashtag Aunt Carol shout out. Um, also, if you haven't gone on iTunes, hit that star rating yet. Um, we really appreciate that. It helps us pick up new subscribers. Um, we are over 300 listeners. We have 300 subscribers, and actually, these podcasts, the numbers are always fluctuating, but some of these podcast episodes have been downloaded uh, over 500 times, which is awesome, but we have 300 full-timers on with us every week, so uh, that's awesome, and we hope to keep growing and talking about things, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and uh, you know, as we move forward... Let us be your rock in the forest, bitches. Don't cut my secret. What am I sister?